0: Our Father, we thank you for the beautiful rain that you sent our way. We're grateful for the moisture that has come at a time when we have been facing considerable dryness. We're thankful, Lord, that it simply is an example of your provision for, for your people and for your love of, and of your love and of your mercy. Father, we're so grateful that today we can gather in this way. We can have the joy of the Lord in our hearts. And as we focus on the Word of God, we can freely study and look at the truth. And it will strengthen us, and it will cause us to understand what it is that you are about in this world collectively and in our hearts individually. Father, I thank you for each one in this room, and I pray for your special blessing this day. And I ask that your Spirit will guide our thoughts and direct the next few moments according to your great will. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to the 38th chapter of the book of Genesis, I'd like to read beginning verse 24. Genesis 38, 24. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out, and let her be burned. And it was while she was being brought out that she went, that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff these are. And Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. For those of you who are visiting, we're in the midst of one of the sticky chapters of the book of Genesis. Chapter 38 is one that, uh, you know, you look up in some of these, uh, uh, like, uh, who is it, Uh, not Oswald Chambers, but Spurgeon and some of these others who give commentaries and little interverse commentaries, and they they leave out chapters like this, you know, (laughs) don't even talk about them for reasons, I suppose, that are maybe obvious, but... There's tremendous truth in here, as we have already been looking at, as we've proceeded through the first 23 verses. We've seen how God is at work, even through what seems to be uh, really tragic stuff here. And in, in the previous verses in this chapter, we have seen how, uh, Tamar, uh, how Judah went off on his own, separating himself from the camp of, of his father, Jacob, and moving down to Adulam, and there he marries a Canaanites, and from this Canaanites, he has three sons. Now, two of these sons are, are already dead. God, we're told in the passage, God struck them dead. Uh, they had both been uh, married to Tamar. The oldest son, Ur, was, was married to Tamar, and, and he died because the Scripture tells us he was wicked in the eyes of the Lord. And then Onan was given to her to fulfill the Levirate vow, and he too is struck dead. And all that's left is Sheila, his youngest son. We don't know exactly how young he was, but as I mentioned to you last time, he probably was not more than a year, two, three years younger than Tamar. She was probably pretty young when she was first married to the oldest brother. And so it wasn't so much the age gap that was important here as it was the fact that he was just too young to be married at the point in which Onan died and to fulfill, therefore, the Leveret vow. He continues to live. And he will not be struck dead at this time because later on in other passages, we'll note, uh, Sheila goes on to have children, uh, obviously by some other, other woman. But uh, Tamar was sent to her father's house to kind of cool her heels until supposedly Sheila uh, grew up. And it was the promise of Judah that she would be married to Sheila when he was old enough to sustain a household. But the years passed and this didn't happen. And so she decided to take into her own hands. Her destiny. Now the scripture in no way in, in this chapter condones any of this. It simply relates it as having happened. And, and we need to recognize that simply because it's in the scripture doesn't mean that God is saying this was good. And he doesn't condone what Tamar does. He doesn't condone what Judah does. But God works anyway in spite of what human beings do. Now She, because of her, uh, what Judah here calls harlotry, she played the role of a temple prostitute. And she waylaid uh, Judah, so to speak, on his way to shear sheep at Timnah. And, of course, it was his own doing, obviously. She was just sitting there. But she became pregnant by her father-in-law. He had given to her his ring which he wore around his neck on a cord, which was a signet, in effect his signature, very common in in that day for people of some substance. And also his staff, which was the walking stick that he carried, which for somebody of any significance was usually embossed in such a way it was as to whom it clearly belonged. And often that was the same symbol as was on the signet. And so he, in effect, had given to her, almost like given to her, a credit card. Not that she could spend it, but it was a... Uh, it was his signature. It was his pledge that he would give to her the calf, or not the calf, the kid that he had promised her. But she wasn't interested in the kid. She wanted those items because then she could prove the parentage of her sons, The who would be the father. And so when three months later, by whatever means, we don't know how it is that she's discovered to be pregnant at only three months, but somehow she is discovered. Scripture doesn't say how or who reported to Judah, but we read in this passage that Judah responded very, very viciously. He said, she is, in effect, the harlot, and therefore she is to be burned. And we noted last week that in that part of the world, in those days, the laws were very, very strict, particularly pertaining to women who were caught in adultery or harlotry other than temple prostitution, which was considered to be not only legal but good to the Canaanite society. But in in this particular case, the the laws, because it wasn't proven at this point that she had played the role of a temple prostitute, she was guilty of, in effect, harlotry and therefore worthy to be burned. Now, she was living in her father's house, but she was under her father-in-law's authority because she had been given to his sons, and she was, in effect, engaged or pledged to his youngest son. So it was up to the father-in-law what happened to her. And so he says, let's burn her. And we looked at some passages in the Old Testament last week in, in the Pentateuch, which tells us about the rules that later God would give relative to these very things, which weren't quite so harsh, but nevertheless very pointed. So when she is being brought out now to be burned, she grabbed the signet ring and staff, you know, on the way out the door. She got, grabbed those uh, items that she had taken from Judah as a pledge. And she sent them to him and said... I'm pregnant by the owner of this staff and this signet. I mean, she dropped a bombshell right in his lap. Judah and Hira, his friend, the Canaanite friend that he had gone up to Timnah with, were the only two people that we know of from this passage who knew what had happened to his pledge, his signet ring, and his staff. Unless he told someone else, but there's no other one that we know would know. But we have to remember, this is only three months later. And so the whole incident is very fresh in Judah's mind. And he has been very concerned about what happened to his signet ring and his staff. Where have these, you know, what has this woman done with him? You know, because they do signify him. And so you can imagine, just, just put yourself in Judah's sandals. Here come the items that he'd been so concerned about. They're handed to him. (laughs) And they came from Tamar. This was overwhelming. You know, I think a shockwave just rolled over Judah. You know, I think he tingled from head to toe and cold sweat broke out because here were these items and they have been given to him by his daughter-in-law who has been found pregnant, supposedly by harlotry. What had become or what had been a small problem, she was a small problem in his life because somehow he'd associated the death of his two oldest sons with Tamar and therefore he'd been reticent to give Shelah to Tamar and I think he just wished she would go away. And here he thought he had an opportunity now maybe to get rid of her and suddenly he faces a gigantic mountain. A molehill had become a mountain in effect. And I think he had possibly even feared that his sin would come back to haunt him. You know, you cannot walk with God or you cannot stand in the presence of God and go out and sin uh, in, in such a way as he did without having the sense that inside there's a gnawing, there's a gnawing that what you've done is wrong and that God is not pleased. And I think back in the back of his mind was this thought, you know, that wasn't a good thing to do. But he'd hoped it would just go away, and he'd never hear about it again. And suddenly, here it is, as big as life, bigger than life, in front of him. He becomes, I think, a living example of that passage we so often quote at least a portion of in Numbers 32. We, put, we quote usually one line of it, not in context. But uh, in Numbers 32, if you will turn to verse 20, Israel is about to enter the land. The two tribes of Reuben and Gad have decided they want to stay on the east side of the Jordan. They want to live in Gilead. And they are allowed to do so provided they will send their armies along with the other tribes as they enter the land of Palestine, Canaan, And as long as they help in the conquest, they will be allowed to stay on the east side of the Jordan. And this is the encounter here in verse 20. So Moses said to them, that's to the leadership of the tribes of Reuben and Gad, If you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for war, and all of you armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you shall return and be free of obligation toward the Lord and towards Israel, and this land shall be yours for a possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. And we often quote that last line. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong to quote it out of the context. I think this is a statement that, that God is true about God and our relationship to Him and sin, no matter where we are or when we are. Be sure our sin will find us out. And this is the truth about Judah. Judah has not walked the way of God for many, many, many years. And his sin has found him out in a very, very big way. I mean, we're not only talking about the sin of having yielded to his lust and, and had a sexual relationship with a woman that he thought was a Canaanite temple prostitute. But he has become involved in what even in that society was considered to be a much greater sin, and that is the sin of incest. Even in the Canaanite society, that generally was not looked upon with favor. And so what we have here is a frightening snowballing. Is there's, there's something about sin that when we let it remain and then we try to cover it with another sin and yet another sin, it, it begins to snowball. And it gets bigger and it gets bigger and it gets bigger until we face great disaster. And this whole snowballing came about as his, in his initial refusal to carry out his word, to, to fulfill his vow. He should never have promised Shelah to Tamar if he didn't intend to allow that union to take place. And so in his failure to do this, other sins have piled up and it's become mountainous. Now it's very true that Judah could have argued, she stole those. When I wasn't looking, she stole them. You know, she, she crept into my house and she stole my ring and, and my staff from me in order to save herself. But you know what's interesting? To his credit, he does not do that. He makes no attempt to say that or to imply that she acquired these by some uh, improper means. Of course, Hira did know. There's no indication that Hira was here, though, at this particular uh, encounter we're reading about here. But Hira at least did know that uh, that wouldn't have been a true statement. But what we have here is Judah facing up to his sin. I think it It's at this point, it's very possible that it's at this point that Judah begins to become a changed man. Because later on as we look at him in the book of Genesis, we're going to discover he is a changed man. He will be, of course, the the ancestor of the great line of of Israelite and Jewish kings. From David all the way through Josiah. And ultimately the ancestor of Messiah. Messiah. Why through Judah? God was at work in the heart of this man. And I think this was the point at which God began to do his work. Judah acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges his guilt here in this situation. And he does not make any attempt to excuse it, let alone cover it up. More importantly, and this is, I think, a real critical point, he confesses his sin. Now, in this case, apparently he does so publicly. But the important thing is that the sin is confessed. In 1 John 1, 1.9, we read that passage so often that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think all of us face that same situation where we think, oh, but can the Lord possibly stand to see my face again? I've confessed this sin before many times. God wants to see our face as many times as it takes. Remember what he said to Peter. How many times shall I forgive those who have sinned against me? And Jesus said 70 times seven, 7, which basically means infinitely, you know, an infinite number of times. It doesn't mean literally 490 times. In the 491st time, you can poke his lights out, you know. No, you, you keep forgiving just as God continues to cleanse us. The genuineness of his confession and of what I think is the implied repentance here is that he recognizes Tamar as more righteous than he. I mean, who is Tamar? First of all, she's a woman in that society. That put her on a second level. And then on top of that, she was a Gentile. I mean, we're talking about a Canaanitis here. And... She, obviously in his uh, eyes, he be recognized, she had done no more than attempt to force him to carry out his vow. So what could he do but acknowledge that she, a Canaanite woman, his daughter-in-law, was more righteous than he? Now, he does not burn her. And not only does he not burn her, he provides for her. And not only that, he will provide and raise, provide for and raise the two sons that will be born of her. Now, he does not take her his wife because he could not do that. She was his daughter in law. At the same time, though, he cannot give her to Shelah because she is of child, with child, by her father in law. I mean, this would just compound the incestuousness of the situation. And so it is implied, at least I think, that she remains under his protection within his household, but she has no further relationships with a man, apparently, for the rest of her life. But she will be a mother of two very, very important children. These sons that would become Judah's heirs would be his heirs in Israel rather than his sons by Bashuah, or the daughter of Shua. Those sons would not bring forth the lineage of Judah in Israel. Now, first of all, Ur and Onan both died without issue. But Shelah does have issue, but that is not the issue through which the tribe of Judah will develop historically and become ancestral to the line of Jewish kings. I think it is because Judah humbled himself here in this situation that he received the grace of God. The scripture teaches us that God resists the proud, but he shows love and mercy and grace to the humble. And Judah here in his humility, I think, receives the grace of God in this situation. And God would later use him, therefore, as an intercessor, as unlikely as that would seem as you read through the 38th chapter of Genesis. But this, I think, becomes the uh, series of initial steps that will lead to the fulfillment or the beginning of the fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy concerning his son Judah. We look at the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis where Jacob makes his prophecy concerning his sons and their descendants. And we look beginning at verse 8. Judah is... Referred to here, he he talks about his sons, beginning with Reuben, then Simeon and Levi, and then Judah in the 49th chapter, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion. Uh, And as a lion, who dares to rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's a statement of the royal lineage coming through the line of Judah until Shiloh, Messiah, comes. And of course then the ultimate kingship will pass to the son of david whose throne is eternal as we read in so many passages of scripture let's go on now to the next uh, the final verses here of the 38th chapter beginning at verse 27 38:27 27. and it came about at that at the time that she was giving birth that behold there were twins in her womb moreover it took place while she was giving birth one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about that he drew back his hand, and that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So is, he was named Perez. And afterward his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was Zara. Sometimes we wonder why Scripture has these little, <laughs> interesting little anecdotes, you know. I mean, so this lady ties a scarlet thread on a kid's hand. I mean, why is that in the holy word of God? Well, I think we have to remember that the scripture was put together uh, for one reason, to give to the nation of Israel a sense of its heritage and of the direction of flow lineage-wise through history and the hand of God upon his special people. We're talking about six months later, after the passage we just read before, And we're probably talking about uh, the time of year that many, many well, a couple of millennia later, would be referred to as Christmas time, probably around that time that Tamer gives birth to Judas' twin sons. And here we have recorded with this the interesting little account here. Uh, that I think influenced the naming of the boys and uh, because of the importance of Perez in the lineage, as we'll note in a minute, it becomes significant that uh, the reason for his name be given. It's the midwife's uh, doing here, it seems. She saw that one one little boy stuck his little hand out, you know, and she thought, well, he's coming first, so just because we don't want the twins mixed up, she ties the thread around, so it's very important to know who's the firstborn. Here and uh, she felt he would be the firstborn, and then lo and behold, he pulls his hand back, and his brother comes out first. This was a little distressing to the midwife she didn't think this was what ought to happen. The babies didn't do it right so it's interesting first of all, uh, she decided that Zara was the firstborn because he stuck his hand out first, you know and so His name was Zerah, which meant to rise or to come forth. And it was on his arm that the thread was tied. And so she said, he's the firstborn. But the other son was given a less than ideal name. It was called Perez, which means a breach or a breaking through. The idea was that he had improperly forced his way ahead of his brother. You know? (laughs) It's like when you're trying to go through a door and somebody else just kind of rams on ahead of you, you know, busts through this door ahead of you. And uh, so this this kid has to carry the rest of his life. He has to be known as a breaking forth or as a breach, you know. (laughs) Kind of interesting the way they used to name their children, very differently from the way we do it. We think of some really nice name or maybe a biblical name that we like and we give that. We don't even stop to think about the meaning of the name. Of course, you, you look today, you go to the Bible bookstore and you look up all the names and of course they all have good meanings today. They're either a chief or a warrior or, or you know, some, some great meaning to every name. It doesn't say you know, a jerk of the first water or something like that because who's going to give that to somebody as a little plaque to put on the wall? Even though it might be true. Now, the question is, who is really the firstborn? The midwife determined that it was the one who put his hand out and upon whom she tied the scarlet thread. But that is not God's determination of who was the firstborn here. I have a few passages there that I thought would be interesting to look at to see how God determines things here. In Genesis chapter 26, verse 12, 46, yes, thank you. Genesis 46, verse 12. We read, uh, running down here through a lineage, the sons of Judah, Ur and Onan and Shelah and Perez and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamuel. Now, what you'll notice about that passage, first of all, is the order in which the sons are named. Ur is the oldest, Anan is the second, Sheila is the third. Then of the twins, Perez is named before Zerah, in the order here. And you'll notice that only Zerah, uh, Perez's sons are named. Okay? This is a, a first indication. Now, if we go to the 26th chapter of Numbers, we have another. 26th chapter of Numbers, looking at verse 20. In the 19th verse, references made to Ur and Onan, but it says that they died. And verse 20, the sons of Judah, according to their families, were of Shelah, the family of the Shelanites, of Perez, the family of the Perezites; of Zerah, the family of the Zerahites. And the sons of Perez were Hezron, the family of the Hezronites, of Hamul, the family of the Hamulites. So again, what we have in this particular passage is the three sons are named, and from this we recognize that Shelah obviously did have children, because it says the Shelanites, the Shelites, <laughs> whichever it was they said there, yeah, Shelanites, uh, were, were the descendants of, of Shelah. So obviously he did have children, so he married someone, and by that person, children were born. But you'll notice again that Perez is mentioned first. And only the sons of Perez are named, again, in this particular passage. So what we see is that the preeminence is given to Perez in the passages as we go here. Now, Zerah will have five sons. We know that from 1 Chronicles chapter 2. We're told there that Zerah would have five sons. But his sons are not even mentioned here in this particular passage particular passage. And wherever you read, the family of Perez is always given priority. Notice, for example, a very, very interesting little passage at the very end of the book of Ruth. Uh, here we find, of all things, at the end of the book of Ruth, uh, of Ruth, a lineage of Perez. Ruth comes just before Samuel. Ruth chapter 4, verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. So what we have here is an interesting little thing where the, the passage backs up from David to Perez. And the passage says, these are the generations of Paras. It doesn't even say these are the generations of Judah. Because Judah had other generations. And and so it backs up to Paras and traces it on down here to cover, of course, the story of the the book of Ruth. It would be sandwiched in at the end there of this particular uh, passage. Now, David is the ninth generation of Paras. The significance of his line, that is, line of Perez, to Judah and to the history of Judah is further emphasized. I didn't put this uh, passage on. I'll just turn to it here. But there's a verse in Numbers chapter 2, verse 3, which gives us another indication of the importance of one of the descendants of Perez. And this is a great-great-grandson, Nashan, Because in chapter 2 of Numbers, in verse 3, we read, Now those who camp on the east side towards the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah by their armies. And the leader of the sons of Judah, Nashon, the son of Amminadab. And so we find the preeminence coming in Judah, the tribe of Judah, to the family of Perez. And so it's obvious that whatever the midwife said, God determined Perez was the firstborn. Now, again, I I mentioned this last week, but I I think it's worthy of emphasis because it shows us something about who God really is. In the first chapter of Matthew, we looked at that, and we looked at a few other verses there in the first chapter of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it goes on down through the uh, next several verses there uh, in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 3 says... And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And then uh, down in verse 5 it says, And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. And then down in the 6th verse, the latter part says, And to David was born Solomon by her her who had been the wife of Uriah. You read through that first chapter of Matthew and discover only five women are named or referred to. One of those women was Mary, who was, of course, Jesus' human mother. But four other women are mentioned there. One of those is Tamar, the the woman we're talking about in this particular passage. And and what we know about Tamar is she was a Canaanitis, and that she came into the lineage by incest. Another woman named there is, is Rahab. And, of course, we know who Rahab was, do, do we not? She was by profession a harlot, not even a temple harlot. <laughs> there in, in Jericho, she was a Canaanitis and she was a harlot. And yet she will become a member of the lineage of Messiah. Of course, we know that she had a, a, an experience of God. The grace of God came upon her and she was the only one and her family saved out of the whole city of Jericho at the time of the destruction of that city. And then we have Ruth mentioned. And who was Ruth? Well, again, she is a Moabitess. She is not of the line of Israel. Now, she was a good woman, but she came into the, the lineage by rather unorthodox means, as we read about in the book of Ruth. And then finally, we have the one who is referred to as the wife of Uriah, the one that's referred to in, in the historical books as Bathsheba who was the wife of a Hittite. She herself may have been a Hittite. And she comes into the lineage by adultery. So we have someone who comes in by incest. We have someone who, who was a professional harlot. We have someone who uh, is, is a pagan. That is, her, she was a foreigner. She was a Moabitess, and Moab was often the enemy of Israel. And, and then we have someone who comes in by adultery. And you read a list like that and you think, well, this is probably not exactly the social elite here. You know, the social elite we're talking about here. Uh, And why are the others not named? I mean, every one of these situations, every one of these guys had to have a mother. (laughs) Where's the mother of these others? Why is the other mothers, why are the other mothers not mentioned? Well, I don't think that any of us can give a complete answer to that. We can give partial answers. We can talk, well, the custom of the day you know, was that only the guys counted and the girls didn't count for much, at least in the minds of the people. uh, I don't think that we really can lay too much in that. I think there is a partial answer here that we can come up with, though. And I think that partial answer, as I've put there in the end of your outline, is explained in at least three ways. First of all, as we have seen, We have a God who is merciful. We have a God of grace. We have a God who doesn't look at men and women as we look at one another. We have a God who looks at the heart. If it were not so, none of us would have any right to stand before God. Even though we may not have been a Canaanite harlot or something of that order, our sin is as great as Tamar's or Rahab's or anyone else's. None of us is worthy to go before God and say, oh, God, you're so lucky to have me. We all must go before him with our heads bowed and spiritually on our knees, if not physically, with humble hearts, recognizing that none of us is worthy in our own flesh to stand before the Almighty And secondly, I think that this is an expression of God to show that the Gentiles were included in the plan of salvation. It was not a plan just for the nation of Israel. It was a plan that would incorporate the whole of the human race. Christ died to save sinners. It doesn't matter whether a sinner is called a Jew or an Israelite or, or a Moabite or an American. God sent his son to die for all. And so the Messiah draws from the line of humanity. And then, thirdly, God's not going to be put in a box. You can't draw lines around God and Says this is what God only does and God never does anything else. You know, like, like we predict God. We can predict God about like the weather forecasters can predict the weather. <laughs> God's ways are beyond our understanding. And if we were God, we'd say, oh, we'd do it differently. Well, obviously if we were God, we'd be up there and every time somebody did it wrong, we'd knock him upside the head. You know, what Hitler would have been knocked off about the time he tried to get the, you know, uh, take over there in Germany. And uh, Stalin wouldn't have made it very far, you know. but But God functions differently. And in Isaiah 55, we have a passage that really points that out, I think, very clearly to us. It's a well-known passage, but I think as we... Come to the end of this particular chapter of the book of Genesis. It's a fitting passage to conclude with. Verse 6 of Isaiah 55 Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declared the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we need to keep that in our minds. Every time we think we got God cornered and figured out, look at that passage. I mean, that doesn't mean we can know nothing about God. Ob- obviously, that's not true. The, this book gives us great revelation about him. But we can't corner him. And we have to recognize he's, he's, he's greater than, than the whole of human race combined in, in, in the best thoughts that the human race can have. And, you know, as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, I mean, we're talking about the heavens of God. We're not talking about the sky or, you know, the 600-mile limit out there where you go into outer space or what, anything of, of that nature. We're talking about a different realm, an infinite realm. And God's high, uh, thoughts are infinitely higher than ours. Can you get a hold of infinite? I don't think so. Most people really can't wait till they start talking about Joseph rather talk about Joseph than Judah, because we think of Joseph as a good guy. Let's look at 39th chapter. This is on your, oh, we were already on page 66, weren't we? 39th chapter. Let's get started with the first six verses here. Some of feel like they, they come out of a choppy sea into a little bit of a calm pool here as you get into Joseph, even though it gets pretty nasty here as you get down in the middle, midway through this chapter too. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer of his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. And it came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned, in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there was not. he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was, a han- was handsome in form and in appearance. <laughs> kind of a funny little appendage there, but it leads directly, of course, into the next section. You know, if we, we contrast Judah, Judah and, and Joseph here, we think, whoa, I mean, we're talking about really radically different guys here. And To us, we'd say, well, obviously, if you're going to bring out Messiah on the earth, you should bring him through Joseph, because Joseph's a good guy. And look at the kind of guy Judah was. But again, that's not how God functions. God has a plan. And besides, we've already noted, as we've looked at previous chapters, that Joseph was something besides, you know, the knight in shining armor. I mean, the the guy had had a few problems, too. And uh, got himself in a peck of trouble as a result. But we're now talking about a new phase in the history of the Hebrew nation, which begins at this point. The, the first verse of the 39th chapter, where we read, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, ties right in with the last verse of 37th chapter, where it says, meanwhile the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. And so you just leapfrog over the 38th chapter here to continue on with the story of Joseph. But what is interesting is that the 38th chapter of Genesis is intentionally placed where it is. This is not an accident. Uh, God places it there so that it would be seen as a parenthesis to give background for the ultimate supremacy of the tribe of Judah. Otherwise, you wouldn't see it. You know, as you go from from Joseph to Joseph you think well you know it's got to be Joseph but through this 38 chapter we get a little inkling of God beginning to work in the heart of a man to create a lineage through whom he would send messiah now Joseph will be the progenitor of a great of a great nation his two sons will become tribal heads of Israel. And combined, Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, if you consider them as the tribe of Joseph, for a long time they will be the largest tribe in terms of, of numbers. And of course it will be the northern half of the nation that will be named for Ephraim. And the southern half of the nation will be named for Judah. And so Joseph and Judah will be the two lead tribes and the two big tribes. Now, we read in the scripture here that Joseph was carried off down into Egypt by the Ishmaelites. And again, in the end of the 37th chapter, it calls them the Midianites. But we talked about how, in effect, the Ishmaelites and the Midianites are seen as uh, one people or a closely related people. When is this? What year in history are we talking about? Well, if anybody knows, let me know because I'd really like to know. (laughs) But we can't pin it down to a specific year, probably not even to a specific decade. We're probably talking about the 20th to the 19th century BC, somewhere along in there, that Joseph is sold down into Egypt. And it's very interesting, I think, for us to note that at this point, Hebrew history and Egyptian chronology come into parallel here for a period of time, at least significantly for Israel, because Israel is in Egypt. Now, we don't have time to, to develop this. Maybe I'll just introduce this, and I'll try to put together an out uh, I mean, uh, a handout next week that kind of summarizes some of this, because it, it's not easy just to, to retain it as somebody just speaks it out quickly. But but ancient Egyptian history is roughly divided into 30 dynasties covering 30 centuries. And we're talking about a period from about 3100 B.C. down to 30 B.C., when there was uh, just prior to, just after a major battle was fought off the coast of Greece, which brought an end to, more or less an end to independent uh, uh, Egyptian existence vis-à-vis Rome. But that history is is divided into three great kingdoms and some intermediate periods. For example, if you talk about the early history of Egypt, you have from about 3100 BC to about 2700 BC, sort of a proto-dynastic period. This is the time when Egypt is beginning to form as as a great nation, and the first two dynasties are uh, in existence. And uh, traditionally, in Egyptian history, we have it, the, the pharaoh position beginning about 3100 B.C. with a man by the name of Menes who supposedly merged uh, upper and lower Egypt together as, as a single nation. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus uh, made the statement, which is often quoted, that Egypt is the gift of the Nile. And this, of course, you can easily see. If you've ever seen some of the satellite photographs looking down on, on Egypt from space, you see this little strip of dark... Uh, running through this otherwise totally barren area. If it weren't for the Nile River, Egypt wouldn't even exist as a historical nation, and the population of Egypt would be no greater than the population of most of the rest of the Sahara Desert. But with the Nile River running through there, you have one of the most ancient civilizations that have ever existed, and even today you have a tremendous population concentration in a very small area, because most of Egypt's 50... Plus million people live in that little narrow strip of the Delta and and then the Nile River running up to um, Lake Nasser. I mean, we're talking about a real heavy population concentration. I mean, if you take all that area, you're talking about about the size of the state of Maryland. And you put 50 50 to 60 million people into Maryland, you've got a pretty crowded place. Even New Jersey which is the most densely population-related of our states, wouldn't come anywhere near that kind of a population density. And, and so what you have is a historical situation where uh, people lived along with, you know, in, 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 the, red, in the black land. They, they called it, the ancient Egyptians referred to it as black land, red land. Black land being the land that, to which the water is applied, the red land being the desert all around them. And uh, if you've ever been to Egypt, you know that between the Black land and the red land is almost a, a knife sharp mark on the ground. It's not quite that, but we've stood there and looked and boy, it just moves out of the out of the uh, fertile soil and the palm trees, and all of a sudden, bang, you're in the desert. I mean just um, the tradition the transition is very, very sudden. we We have an old kingdom, we have an intermediate period, then we have a middle kingdom, then we have another intermediate period, then we have a new kingdom. And what we're talking about here is the Middle Kingdom. And uh, next week as we look at this, as I said, I'll I'll put together kind of a brief historical handout that will kind of summarize uh, this this history here. But we're looking at the Middle Kingdom. So we're talking about a period from about two thousand eighteen hundred, and that's where Joseph is sandwiched at this particular time. And then it'll move on to the New Kingdom, and that's when Israel will leave uh, the land of Egypt some nearly 500 years later. As we proceed with the life of Joseph, we're going to find some really, really wonderful truths. And even this first chapter about his life, his sojourn in Egypt, is going to highlight the characters of this man in terms of his relationship to his God. And that's what makes all the difference in this man's life. A man who is able to face some of the greatest temptations a person can face and, and yet do it in the strength of the Lord and be victorious. And we need to, to look at that and to be helped.